So part one is, uh, part one was all about warfare. The sermon was entitled, You Must Be Out of Your Mind. It's a personal battle. I talked about a personal battle that we all fight. The battle is waged globally. And it's, uh, ultimately, it's about building the kingdom of God. And I trust that from part one, you saw the cosmic proportions of the battle of the ages as well. Don't think for one moment that the grip of modern terrorists upon the psyche of the Western world, and maybe of the entire world, doesn't have its equivalent in the spiritual realm. There has always been. And until the Lord intervenes himself, there always will be a battle between good and evil. Remember a few years ago, the Lord of the Rings brought us the fantasy world of, uh, of Tolkien. But the reality, but reality and biblical reality was the seed plot from which this film grew. The final episode, which you will recall was entitled Return of the King, is almost too eerily similar in parts to biblical prophecy to be just a, just a mere coincidence. I remember being captivated by an event in Poland in 1983. I used to be a little older, you know. Remember things. As a journalist at that time, I was constantly overdosing on news. And in those days, it was that heady period when communism was showing some serious cracks. While surrounded by Soviet divisions and, and infiltrated by numerous KKGB agents, one million Poles, and that's really what fired me at that point in time, one million Poles sang and celebrated with the Pope in Warsaw. It was a powerful, powerful confrontation as official anti-religious socialist policy was challenged so openly. Joseph Stalin is often quoted when he said, how many divisions does the Pope have? As if to say that military might is really all that matters. And regardless of what we think of religious structures, because in this case it was Roman Catholicism, I do see the hand of God in the affairs of state. God doesn't sleep while petty politicians, and despots and dictators defy his authority. God has a way of capturing our minds. Let me ask the question, with this as its backdrop, where is the Soviet Union today? Communism and many of the other isms of our world have never been able to eradicate the name of Christ. Paul saw his world through discerning eyes, and he felt confidence and security in the, in the Christian message. He knew that there would be a victor. Now here's where we read last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. And I'll read it as well today in another, in another of our versions. It says, the world is on principle. It's dog-eat-dog -dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing that, entirely, that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools 
for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. The New International Version puts it this way. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. You see, our, our battle as well is fought on the personal level. When I was a kid, we rode the train on Dad's Pass. It read, Claude Andrews and Dependents. And in those days, I was dependent. My father was my ticket. But nobody is gathered into heaven on someone else's merits or abilities. You don't get that kind of pass. There's only one pass, and there, this is something we all have to deal with. And so we have to come up with strategies for victory in our own lives. If we are going to win this battle that's out there for our minds, let me offer you some strategies. And I said that this is where we would go this, this week. The first thing we have to do is analyze the situation we find ourselves in. Too many of us can become victims if we let our minds dwell in the past. Can an abandoned person ever get over the sense of being rejected? And do we reject others based on that? Do we blame ourselves or do we blame the Lord for things we feel should never have happened to us? Can we change what's in the past? You see, we can suffer the consequences of someone else's action, and yes, we can be deeply hurt by what another person has done. I began my sermon last week by talking about how my grandparents both died on the same, the same day, and I've never forgotten the cruel fact that the person who hit them was, and as it was told, told to us, had been heavily drinking that day and had only sustained minor inju injuries in what became a double fatality on our part. Will I ever minister to a drunken driver because of what happened to my, grand, my grandparents? I can remember a night in Halifax when I, when I passed it in, in, that, in that particular area when I had to fish one of my new converts out of the drunk tank. He had been caught for impaired, impaired driving. The lure of his old ways and some good friends who tried to drag him back to his old lifestyle proved to be too much for him on that particular occasion. He not only got behind the wheel inebriated, but he also was caught by the police. And I realized that night, and I remember it well as I drove down there, there to get him, that he was the kind of person who, the person who killed my grandparents on a stormy November day in 1972. What do we write off that type of people based on that type of incident? Not in the least. To do that would be to put myself into a private prison and limit life. And the irony is that the key to unlocking those kinds of doors often goes into my own pocket. And I have to make the choice. 
Frank Outlaw offers a set of interrelated phrases. He says, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. Strategy number two. Memorize the promises of God. God has plenty to say about who he is and what he's willing to do for his children in the battles that we face. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, long regarded as a resurrection chapter because it addresses the fallacy that was going around in the Corinthian church. He says, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Consider Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I've seen it on the, uh, on the outside of boxers' robes when they stepped into the ring at times. I always thought it was kind of weird. Guy saying, Lord, give me the ability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now strengthen me to knock the daylights out of that guy on the other side. Seems a little weird, doesn't it? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. The Israelites are the context as they prepared themselves for the long trip back into their own country again. And Isaiah provides these words, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So familiar to us, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Are you taking pressure in your life? Well, put those kinds of things into the towers of your minds and sing them like battle songs. Arm yourselves with the word of the Lord in these times of trial and trauma. Be like Miriam on the shore of the Red Sea and sing songs of praise unto God when you have come through difficult things. Be like Deborah when she sings before the Lord in the book of Judges after she, she takes the battle sword and goes after the enemy. Why must we always think that we have to be meek and easygoing. There are times when, when we have to, in order to preserve ourselves, to use the militant power of the word of God. So many people, so many people do not know how to defend their minds today because they've not learned to put the right stuff into them. Our society is quickly casting off every restraint. And nearly every church is alarmed that it's being done on a voluntary basis. Force never kills the gospel. Because the kingdom of God is internal and it's spiritual. Long before the Christian fights a battle in the public arena, the battle has already been fought in the bastion of the mind. And consider this with me. If Christians sometimes find this world a difficult place to exist and stand for the Lord in, consider the fact that others who have no knowledge of God have even a lesser chance. Ignorance abounds in our world. And if the Christian does not speak, ignorance will only get greater. If we don't let our light shine, darkness only encroaches a little more. Strategy number three. 
Understand your role in the world. Have you ever thought about your responsibility to stand tall and to know God in the time in which we live? You may be the only person in your peer group who has a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That comes with responsibility. You may, you may be the person that God chooses to, to lead the rest to him. C.S. Lewis declared this in one of his writings. If all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world was uneducated. But a cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and betray our uneducated brethren who have no defense but us against intellectual attacks of the heathen. He puts responsibility upon us to know. Radio preacher Chuck Swindle defends the need for Christians to battle the popular wisdom of our time, and he says this, good philosophy must, ex must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect, Swindle continues, must work not only against cool intellect on the other side, but against muddy, hidden myth, mysticisms which deny intellect altogether. And most of all, we need intimate knowledge of the past. And I love his final statement. Their learned life is then for some a duke. Do you have the capacity to be a learned person? To know and be able to defend your faith? Rabbi Zach Zacharias were here this morning. He'd say a rousing amen to that last statement. Strategy number four, and I only have five. And it's still only a little after 12. We're moving right along. Team up with someone. Develop a Christian support structure around your life. So many try to go it alone. That's John Wayne type of, of foolishness. That's not the Christian way. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. For an important reason, we need to develop webs of friendship in the church that have some spiritual benefit, not just benefit. Social gatherings are fine. A cup of tea or a cup of coffee with friends is helpful. But do these times really help to fortify our souls? Do we need to, to release ourselves from the emotional bondage of some relationships in order to gain others that are more helpful? I read about a period just before the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. British naval hero Lord Nelson learned that an admiral and a captain in his fleet were not on good terms. And so for sending for two of his men, the two that were in some kind of a, a problem, he placed the hands of the admiral and the captain, captain together. He wasn't going to marry them. And looking them both in the face, he said, look, yonder is the enemy. We need each other and we need a common focus in the times in which we live. 
So those webs of friendship are going to be absolutely essential. The final strategy this morning doesn't mean the sermon is over, it just means it's number five. Develop the weapons that God has given you. If scripture became Jesus' prime weapon in his defeat of the enemy, what should the scripture be for us? We need his word. Jesus enjoyed obedience to the Father because, and it comes from last week, because he was able to capture the evil imaginations of the enemy. When he says, turn stones into bread, he knows what's behind it. When he says, cast yourself down from a pinnacle into the temple, Jesus knows the cost. When he says, when he says anything to us, do we really know what's behind it? Something that looks so good can also be a trap. And so he was able to defeat him by truth. And if God's word occupies the high places in our minds, like we, we talked last week about the ancient city, about the high places that, that allowed a city to be defended. If God's word occupies the high places in our minds, we will not be defenseless. Now, this is not a perfect world. I understand that. And we're not perfect, perfect people came into my mind. You see how imperfect I am? I wanted to, after the service today to go down and ask Carrie all kinds of questions about the sermon. But I know that would be cruel. What do you think the thought crossed my mind when he was having trouble hearing? Of course it did. Into this world has come one who wants to penetrate every barrier humanity has erected against God. Jesus Christ wants to get beyond these things, and he's done it. He's made it possible for us to be free. He's put what we all long for inside of our grasp. He's made it possible to be taken out of the condemned city that this world represents and our citizenship transferred into what the scriptures call the new Jerusalem. And the battle is won and lost in our minds. Christ has won the ultimate battle on the cross. But it's unlocked through our faith and through our obedience. Paul had a concise understanding of this. And he wrote to the Philippian church. And, uh, and if you read the context of what's happening in Philippi, the church is losing its mind. False doctrine had begun to rip the Philippians apart. And Paul knew that the battle would be won and lost in their thinking processes, how they looked at life and how they looked at the Christian life. And chapter 2 of that book shows the, the, the apostles' amazing insights into Jesus' life. I'll read it from one of the different versions because I'm always quoting it in, in the normal ones. He says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. Here's thinking processes. Here's, here's a good recipe for the mind. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. Became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. 
he didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever. So that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. What a mind. What an attitude to have. What fortification for the soul. And perhaps it was after reading this that someone said, let the mind of the master be the master of your mind. That's an amazing thought. Several months ago, we studied an Old Testament character. He had a great job in the imperial, imperial palace of Babylon at a place called Susa. He was cupbearer to the king. One day, one of his relatives came by with news from home, and home for this man was, was, was Jerusalem. And he told Nehemiah of a broken down city. He told him about political instability. He told him about his country being in the condition of utter devastation. Nehemiah lost his appetite when he heard the news. He became heartsick, the scripture says. So much so that the king noticed a change in his attitude and said, what's the matter with you? The king speaks to a servant in this manner. Nehemiah, the scriptures tells us, retired to his apartment each day with no sense of accomplishment, no peace, and no rest. But finally, the king discovered the reason for his servant's sadness. Nehemiah was graciously given a leave of absence. They gave him building materials. They gave him a military escort back to his home, homeland. The book of Nehemiah de details it all. On, the, on his first trip by night, once he arrives there, he surveys a broken city, and when he saw it, he knew it was just as bad as the report had said. He saw nothing but brokenness around him. But you know what his response was? He came back and looked at his team. He said, it's doable. We start first thing in the morning. First light. And I suppose many people would have used my title when Nehemiah announced he was leaving his good job in Susa for a reconstruction project in a broken country. You must be out of your mind. But the work, but you see, the mind of God was at work in the mind of this man. He faced incredible odds. Nehemiah was besieged by external problems and internal problems, but he stayed at the work. Some days Nehemiah wore a foreman's hat and some days he occupied the governor's chair. Some days he was chairman of the board. And other days he just nailed boards in place. When you read the story, he was a moving target for everyone who considered themselves his enemy in that time. There were so many who were convinced that his work should never succeed. And Nehemiah just prayed and he stayed. But oh, the battle that must have been fought in his mind. And 
a little while later, walls rose from the rubble and streets were cleared. And you read the story of how gates were hung in their places and Jerusalem became a defensible city once again. And under his capable leadership, 52 days later, the rebuilt walls echoed with the word of God and, and the songs of the people who had come home began to set the stage for another act in God's drama of redemption. It's a great story that unfolds in that historical book. But here's what I look to. On those streets, 400 years later, walked a carpenter with the power of God blazing from his eyes and God's wisdom rolling off his tongue. Cripples walked the streets of Jerusalem only because Jesus Christ had touched them. Blind people saw for the first time some of the work that Nehemiah had accomplished 400 years before. We know from just a, having a visit there at Easter, one of the gates swung open to admit Christ on a day when multitudes shouted Hosanna and literally only days later, the shouts of praise were were laced with anger and a mob yelled, some of the same people, I suspect, crucify him. And they took him down from the cross, laid him in a borrowed tomb, and in just days again, news began to spread that he had been seen by multiple witnesses. I believe in the crucifixion. I believe in the resurrection. We sang our faith a little bit, a little bit this morning. The Son of God holds the keys of hell and death and the keys to a brand new eternal home for all of those who take him as their savior. Now let's fast forward right here, Corner Brook, April 29th, 2018. I hope you're not shocked that you're involved in a battle. But let me inform you again your eternal soul is the prize. So don't be naive at all today. You're fighting for your life. I searched for a way to describe your soul. When you go to the web, there's no icon. There's no photo. Who can offer me a photo of their soul? Who can give me a graphic piece of clip art? I can build into a PowerPoint slide for that. See, your soul is indescribable. It's absolutely priceless. And my final comment today, or nearly final, is that you must be out of your mind to turn down Christ. But ironically, he has to win the battle for your mind before you can serve him. Sometimes we put it right into our confession. Love the Lord with all your body, your soul, helpful with that word, with your mind. Sometimes we add strength. But here's the good news for you as we conclude today. Jesus Christ is on your side in this battle. He's already fought every possible foe that you and I have. 
second piece of good news is that the mighty Holy Spirit is available. He's the superb guide who wants you to know the truth, who wants your mind filled with the good things of God, and he wants you to make God's word your partner for life. So today, folks, entitled it, you must be out of your mind. And it's not a, a slight against any of you or against myself or against humanity in general. But it's saying that the mind of God, the mind of God through the power of the Spirit is the only way that our lives can be changed. If you retain your own mind, you probably can't have the mind of God. I'm not saying that he takes you over and turns you into some kind of robotic creature. I'm saying it has to happen in an act of submission to God who wants to take you to what he's prepared for. Give him more than just your attention. Give him more than just money, if indeed you do that. Give him more than just time on a Sunday morning. Give him everything. The toughest thing to give him would be your mind. Your autonomy. The ability to choose your own way. And instead, let him have his way. 